This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Ferrance Mapper, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hello, everyone. This is Matt Martin, and welcome to the next edition in one of our most popular trauma cast series. This is going to be the sixth edition of the case records of the joint trauma system. For any of you who haven't listened to one of these before, this is a planned series of presentations where an expert panel is presented with interesting and challenging battlefield trauma cases drawn from the Department of Defense Trauma Registry. This registry has captured data on all wounded patients treated at forward military medical treatment facilities during combat and post-combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. This session was held at the 2019 Society of Critical Care Medicine meeting and was moderated by Colonel Jennifer Gurney and Colonel Retired Lee Cancio. The expert panelists included Lieutenant Colonel Jeremy Pamplin, Lieutenant Colonel Jeremy Cannon, Colonel Retired John O, Colonel Kevin Chung, and Colonel J. Johannigman. And now, without further delay, I'll turn it over to Colonel Gurney. Uh, thank you all for attending the last session of today. My name's uh, Jennifer Gurney. I'm a surgeon, the Joint Trauma System, and this is my co-moderator, Dr. Lee Cancio, also my boss, retired Army colonel and a burn surgeon. Thank you to the military committee for uh, selecting this for the second year in a row, the case records of the Joint Trauma System Critical Care Focus. This uh, is a standard military disclosures. This does not, or anything that anybody says, does not represent the Department of Defense. And also, given the fact that these are real cases from the downrange environment, military health system environment. Not all of the pictures are the exact patient, but most of them are. I'm just going to introduce our panel members. Thank you to all of them for being on the spot today. We have Dr. Jeremy Pamplin coming from Frederick, Maryland. He's the chief of Tatrick. Dr. Jeremy Cannon, who's a trauma director, University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Dr. Kevin Chung, who's the chief of medicine at Uniformed Services University, Bethesda, Maryland. Dr. John O, oh, retired Army Colonel. Uh, who's a director of surgical critical care in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and Dr. J. Johanneman is a trauma director at C-Star Cincinnati. The purpose of the case records of the joint trauma system is that so these valuable lessons learned over the last two decades of war and conflict are not forgotten. We've learned plenty of lessons. Many of them have translated over to the civilian sector, and we want to be sure that as we move forward that we don't forget the lessons learned. Like I already mentioned, these are actual cases that were seen in the military health system. Please have respect for the patients and the management as well as the occasionally very resource-limited environments. We'll discuss each case. Uh, we will not to talk, talk about any tactical or strategic operational information. You guys are welcome to participate. Please go to a microphone or Dr. Cancio might go around the room. Just know that if you ask them questions, we might be asking you questions back. No, but you can uh, participate, please. Okay, panelists, here's your scenario. You are at a Roll 3 combat support hospital in Afghanistan. It's dirty. It's dusty. You frequently get multiple casualties at one time. Your forward or your combat support hospital is just next to where this Chinook or UH-47 will land, and usually multiple casualties are offloaded. Uh, 
we'll wait for the casualties. From what you've heard, you're getting at least four casualties from either an IED blast or firefight, but many times the pre-hospital information is not always accurate. And the casualties will be loaded off the back of the Chinook. And now go ahead and enter into your Roll 3 hospital. This is a typical Roll 3, even though the capability is significant. Uh, there's frequently resources that are limited. doesn't look like a typical level one trauma center in the states, but it certainly has many of the capabilities of the states. Okay, so the first case, Afghanistan 2011 Combat Support Hospital. Uh, you have ancillary service support, as already mentioned, a huge blood bank and the capability for a walking blood bank to get fresh whole blood. Uh, foot patrol, so it's a dismounted IED blast, multiple casualties, two urgent surgical patients, and four priority patients. And the patients are being brought to you by the helicopter that you just saw. The time of injury is almost uh, 1,600, 24-year-old active duty male, right above knee and left below knee amputations, right arm laceration with good bleeding control. Tourniquets to lower extremities were placed in the pre-hospital environment. The patient has a GCS of eight, is barely breathing, did not respond to the placement of a nasal pharyngeal airway. They did perform a pre-hospital cricothyroidotomy. Uh, the patient arrives about a half an hour later, about half an hour later, uh, vital signs, heart rate of 130, respiratory of 25. They were unable to ascultate breath sound secondary to the aircraft noise. The patient became pulseless in route and unresponsive, and CPR was initiated just prior to landing. So you received them at your uh, combat support hospital that you saw the video of, one PIV in place, CPR in progress. Primary survey, vital signs are absent. On the monitor, there's electrical activity with a heart rate of 50, and CPR is continued. So our first question for the panelists is, what is your next step? ED thoracotomy, Rebola, transfusion, crystalloid, or stop CPR? Dr. Cannon, let's begin with you. So uh, this is a, um, uh, an unfortunate situation uh, in, in that uh, the patient probably should have received blood products pre-hospital. Was there any blood product administration? No, no pre-hospital blood. So I'm going to rapidly activate our massive exsanguination protocol and start blood transfusion and then do a quick assessment of the patient. Are there penetrating wounds to the head or neck? You mentioned the one uh, upper extremity injury, and then I'm going to assess my tourniquets real quick as well. Tourniquets are functioning. There's no bleeding because the patient has no pulse. And, uh, any uh, penetrating wounds to the abdomen or back? No, nothing that you can see. And uh, what's our vascular access situation? You have one peripheral IV. So what are you going to do? Thoracotomy, Reboa, transfusion, crystalloid, or you can call it. You have more patients coming in. Yeah, so in, uh, in my hands, um, vascular access after the patient is already arrested is um, difficult and time-consuming. Uh, so for me, it's going to be a resuscitative thoracotomy. Okay. Dr. Chung? I think I'm going to defer to my trauma surgery colleagues. You're the only one in the ER. The trauma surgeons are in the OR. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. So this kid needs blood. He's, so one question, that, that rate of 50, that's a, a narrow complex sinus rhythm? That's correct. Yeah, so the kid's bled out somewhere. He, so jumpstart him. Uh, I would cut down on his femoral 
uh, triangle and get uh, both uh, an arterial and, and a venous catheter in and get the blood that we'll have ready for them. And uh, uh, see, if, uh, I, did I see previously that they couldn't hear or they didn't? Can you hear breast sounds? And we probably can't in that chaos either. But I would probably vent both chest and see if I am I having any difficulty bagging the patient. Is this an hypoxic arrest? Anything to suggest? Am I ventilating the patient with an AMBU bag, seeing his chest rise with ventilation? Yeah, he has a in and you are seeing it rise and fall with the vented chest. So now you have an arterial line and a venous line, and you're transfusing blood. Doctor yep. O, what are you going to do different or the same? Uh, so he, he's an extremist, so I, I'd give blood right away as well, whatever whatever I got. And if he doesn't have access, I'd put in an IO, probably humeral, but he's really close uh, to getting an ED thoracotomy if he doesn't respond immediately. Sir, from the audience. If I could just make a comment. I'm an anesthesiologist, you know, and when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So uh, Rob Mabry showed in his analysis of all the... Uh, uh, I don't remember what the N was, but uh, the surgical airways uh, in Afghanistan, that 25% of them were malplaced. Uh, and many of them were in the soft tissue. And uh, in my time in Kandahar, uh, practically all of the uh, surgical airways that had been done in the field <coughs> ended up uh, either malplaced or uh, with a right mainstem intubation. So it was, I, I think that the chances of something going wrong the surgical airway in the field are, are very, very high, and that has to be one of the first things that you look at in the ED. Your, your comments are dead on, with the, but the good news is um, the TCCC, which meets again tomorrow, working with Colonel Mabry has modified the procedure set for that, and the recent look at the success rate is a bit higher than what you were probably referring to. You were in Kandahar six, eight years ago. More recently, it's a little bit better. Yeah, although I will, I will also tell you during my recent deployment, which was last year, uh, 10 out of 10 patients requiring airway all had cricothrostomies. None were endotracheally intubated. So we're trying to figure out where that pendulum swings straight. But, yes, obviously really well-made point that none of us brought out. The first thing we should do is make sure that this is not a hypoxic arrest, that that airway is functional, and there's lots of different ways to do that. Point succeeding and well-made. Dr. Chung, Dr. Pamplin, the trauma surgeons are in the ER. Or in the OR, are you guys putting in a Reboa in this patient? Um, I think the priority remains on uh, blood transfusion, blood transfusion, blood transfusion. The, the person has a heart rate, um, and there's no downside to having more than one I.O., uh, an I.O. externally or in the humeral heads or in all of those locations to get volume uh, into the patient. And if um, after probably um, at least... Uh, four to six units of blood, FFP, um, and platelets. Uh, if this person doesn't have uh, a pulse, then I would continue CPR. In fact, the priority should be on putting the blood in, not on doing chest compressions. I think, um, you know, the simplicity of Reboa, it, I mean, it's um, underestimated. Um, and so... In somebody without a pulse, the key is getting vascular access and Simplicity getting... Simplicity is overestimated oh, or underestimated? So, overestimated. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, overestimated. So, you know, when you're, you're dealing with somebody without a pulse, getting a catheter in the artery is not easy. It's got to be a cut down. And so um, I'm not the person to do that cut down. So, no, I would not be putting in a Reboa uh, without a surgeon. Could, could I see a show of hands from the audience? In this scenario here, would anyone in the audience uh, put a Reboa in at this point? 
anyone in the audience do a ED thoracotomy at this point? Have the record note that nobody said Reboa and a handful of people said ED thoracotomy. Thanks. Okay. Could I ask a question back to the airway? Is it standard protocol to crike a patient like this, or was there difficulty with the intubation process? Anybody want to take that? Yeah, the most recent recommendations of the TCCC for care, for tactical field care, suggest that the most field expedient way uh, is to secure the airway with a cricothorostomy. Now, the most, we're, tomorrow we're going to be discussing, and, and now we're, we've inserted uh, LMAs in that as well. But, um, yeah, my just anecdotal experience is that the majority of airways now are managed with cricothorostomies in the field. And the pre-hospital providers do a significant amount of training on it. And I think at the beginning, uh, you know, the 2003 to 2008, we did see a lot of problems with it. But as they're training more and having more high-fidelity simulation training, we're not seeing as many problems with cricothyroidotomies. But again, you know, as a trauma surgeon, I, I having issue of is it easier to do the crike? and less complication than putting it in a tracheal tube in with a medic? For a medic, for sure. It is? Yes, absolutely, oh, okay. yes, sir. Well, and they'll talk about light tactics and exposure in the middle of the night using that, you know, intubating somebody in the middle of a firefight is more difficult than palpating and under red light manually placing your airway when you're standing right. One more question from the audience, and we'll move on. Uh, yes, ma'am. So I guess my question would be, at a row three, the majority of these uh, spots, even a row two, uh, at a lot of these spots, have ultrasound. So does someone throw an ultrasound on the chest? I mean, I understand maybe that the pulse wasn't felt. Maybe they were just so underperfused or hyperperfused that you just couldn't feel a pulse, and that 50 was actually a heart rate. They just couldn't palpate. Right. Because that may change things, right? So if I have a pulse and if I have cardiac activity on echo, Maybe I would throw a boy in just to kind of improve hemodynamics until I can get him to the OR. So that may change things a little. I think the value of, I mean, uh, other diagnostic tools is, is valuable. But in this context, and a person who's just come off the field um, who is, um, has a, some organized rhythm, the priority is on getting access and giving blood product. After blood product is in place, um, reassessing the perfusion pressure and the pulse uh, becomes more valuable, and if you still can't feel, then you need to go down other diagnostic algorithms. But uh, and the first step is 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 in this case to give him blood. I, th I think that's a valid point, though. If he doesn't have a cardiac tamponade or a hemopneumothorax, I think a Reboa, if you can put it in expediently, might. I I don't experience with it. I would probably do a thoracotomy because in my hands that's the most expedient way to uh, get cardiac output, but might not be a bad idea as long as the caveats are. No pericardial tamponade, no hemoneumothorax. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, using ultrasound to triage. Always taking account uh, your resources, which, you know, people talk about the primary survey, secondary survey, and tertiary survey. In the military deployed environment, we talk about the zero survey. First look around and see what resources you have. So, Dr. Cannon, this patient undergoes simultaneous blood resuscitation and resuscitative thoracotomy. Uh, they are able to get return of vital signs at 1639. They receive five units of RBCs and five of FFP. You see the vital signs, heart rate of 130, systolic blood pressure up to 130 with, with the cross clamp on. What's your next step? CAT scan, operating room, try to transfer to launch stool. 
Longstool Direct. <laughs> With a clamp on? No, I don't think so. So um, just a couple points about the resuscitation. You know, this is an excellent um, matched resuscitation as long as they were going in one-to-one -one simultaneously. I would be thinking about um, a walking blood bank, especially with additional critical casualties uh, coming off the, the Chinook there. Uh, I'm going to give this patient calcium. Uh, we found that if you uh, miss the calcium, their initial ionized calcium will be 0.5 or less. That is a great point. That is and, a great point. Yeah, really, uh, that sort of uh, can bamboozle you know, all your great efforts uh, if you don't uh, keep up with the calcium. And then, uh, you know, if I had um, even cold-stored whole blood, I would uh, think about that. And also going to send off a tag. But you're not answering the question. Are you going to go to the CAT yeah, scan or operator? A little preamble. <laughs> a little preamble here. I'm stalling. <laughs> stall tag. Right? No time to At stall. At least I didn't ask you a question. <laughs> so that's the other good stall, stall technique. So, uh, you know, for me, it's great that we've got the CT scanner. Um, but with, with a clamp on the aorta, that's warm ischemia time. And, and I don't want to spend the even 15 to 20 minutes in the scanner burning up uh, a time, you know, even if it's going to potentially tell me something interesting, it, it's, uh, you know, to me going to be a little bit of a waste of time. So I, I'm going to go to the operating room. I'm going to think about a uh, diagnostic peritoneal aspiration, maybe a repeat fast in the OR to, to tell me if there's any intra-abdominal or pelvic uh, cavitary bleeding, and then uh, continue my resuscitation. Dr. O, what are you doing, CT scan or operating room? Yeah, so we, unfortunately we saw too many of these guys uh, at Camp Bastion around this time, but um, so the answer, I agree with Dr. Cannon, straight to the operating room. Um, I personally would um, do a low midline abdominal incision to get proximal vascular control, then you can take off your aortic clamp, and then you also clear the abdomen um, of, or it's a diagnostic laparotomy, basically. Um, if there's no intra-abdominal injuries, you can still get proximal vascular control through the same incision and start working on the extremities. And that's not nearly enough blood that he's gotten. He's going to need a yeah. lot more blood, platelets, TXA, preferably uh, uh, whole blood. Is there any scenario in which you would go to CT scan? Uh, no. It, given no. this fact. That, that's insanity. <laughs> Jay, Dr. Joe Hanneman. This kid doesn't have, he had his uh, Kevlar on his protected helmet, and he does not have a mark above his neck. He, did, he does not. Okay. Then, yeah, I'm, I'm going to the operating room because... So you trust that, that Kevlar helmet that I... I guess well, that's a good thing I wore it because... <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, it, if, if it got across the Kevlar, if he's wearing it, it's still going to leave... It's going to leave some visible sign. But, you know, the, the, as my colleague said, I put him in the OR where I've got the best gosh darn anesthesiologist in the world. It's warm, and they can keep on resuscitating while I either take care of something else and... And then maybe when we get the kid more stable, that's the time for a CAT scan. But right now, he needs to be someplace where we keep that blood pressure up and, and uh, keep him from arresting again. So the surgeons all took the patient to the operating room. In reality, the patient went to get a CAT scan. Interestingly, he also went to the CAT scanner with the aorta cross-clamped, which has only happened a few times. I didn't, wasn't able to capture those images. He did not have any injuries in his head, neck, abdomen, or pelvis. He had a small right pneumo likely from the needle decompressions that were placed when he was in the trauma bay. Uh, and then, so now he's gotten this scan. I think you guys have already said you're going to the operating room. So here we are in the operating room. Uh, we're going to discuss the operative approach, order and priorities, but I'd like to ask our critical care colleagues, Dr. Chung, he had CPR. Are you going to cool him like you cool medical patients? Uh, no. 
Just thought I'd ask. I did, you know. <laughs> so can I ask, how long has he been cross-clamped? He was cross-clamped for about 30 minutes. That's about the threshold beyond which you're going to get hyperkalemia no matter what. So from a critical care standpoint, what are you thinking about? Well, you're going to get ischemia or perfusion after 30 minutes uh, with certainty, and that's going to cause a huge metabolic uh, derangement that comes with coagulopathy and uh, probably catecholamine-resistant shock. The longer you go. So he's died twice. Um, okay, so Dr. Cannon, what's going to be your operative approach? So you guys mentioned you were going to go into the belly first. So looking at this, is that still your plan, go into the abdomen first? Or um, these are the injuries that you see. You know, it, it looks like you've got adequate um, proximal control there. Are those uh, cat tourniquets or pneumatic? They, so they're pneumatic. They were switched from cat yeah. to pneumatic yeah. tourniquets in the operating room. Uh, so for me, I, I would have taken a slightly different approach and done probably a DPA or a repeat fast. Uh, so I may not actually have abdominal exposure. I'm uh, going to um, get the patient resuscitated, assess the um, filling uh, of his aorta. You can do that through direct palpation. Uh, you can, of course, also feel a carotid pulse. And uh, then start to, uh, you know, uh, ease off on the cross clamp as I have my uh, um, proximal um, pneumatic tourniquets inflated. Dr. Johanneman, what are you uh, communicating with our critical care colleagues about while you're in the operating room with this patient to get ready for him post-op? I'm not communicating with them. Their butts are going to be in the OR with me. Ah, they'll be in the OR yeah, with you. The what will they be doing? Well, that's the best thing in the world. There's not much of a social life over there, so I know where they are, and I know where to find them at all times. So, no, this is, this is where this is, this is the beauty of that place is that I will have an anesthesiologist, a critical care intensivist, an orthopod, whatever I need. And, but right now, this kid has already died twice, and hell's going to break loose because you got a cross clamp and two big tourniquets, and you have a ton of ischemia reperfusion washout. And, and the thing I wanted to ask you, Jen, and Lee, and the other people here, I'm dying to figure out what I should give this kid and load him up with as an antioxidant before I start taking these clamps down. And, you know, I'm going to warn anesthesia, and, yeah, you're going to have calcium ready and bicarb, but man, I need an oxygen radical scavenger or I'm going to give him a third insult, which sometimes is all the last thing he needs and he'll tip him over. But that's what, that's what I'm talking to my intensivist about. That's what I'm talking to my anesthesiologist about. Shit, those legs, you know, we can clean them up and, and he bled to death. I think that's a great question. And uh, as people talk more and more about Reboa, uh, yeah. not in this case, but in, in other cases, then how, what do you do when you de deflate the balloon? Right. And uh, is there a drug therapy for that? And at the very least, there's need for a tremendous increase in volume input, blood products, catecholamines, et cetera. And simply letting the balloon down is not an immediate process. It takes time and really in, uh, causes the need for massive resuscitation. And the same thing in this case. Uh, so uh, what would you expect in terms of the, uh, the response uh, what would you be prepared to do when you're As long as you're not yourself. asking me, Dr. Cancio. We're <laughs> so, the ones asking the questions, right? <laughs> yeah, so unfortunately, <laughs> so unfortunately that, um, you know, therapeutic currently does not exist uh, to, to help protect the, the organs, the end organs and the total body from uh, the ischemia, reperfusion injury and the uh, metabolic consequences of that. 
And so what you're doing, uh, you're applying basic critical care principles, uh, making sure that, uh, you know, the patients intravascularly uh, replete if not already done so uh, in the OR. Uh, and you're going to deal with the consequences of the ischemia reperfusion injury and try to mitigate against death. And really the first thing that could kill the patient is hyperkalemic uh, arrest. And so uh, you're ready with uh, your agents that are going to shift you know, insulin, dextrose, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you're putting in a dialysis catheter at this point. And fortunately, uh, we have uh, that capability in a couple of uh, combat support hospitals. Uh, right now, we're working very hard to ma- mandate renal replacement therapy uh, capability for cases like this. And I think something that Dr. Cannon said, and I don't know if you're going to bring it up again, is the importance of calcium, especially in massive transfusion. We've changed our clinical practice guideline at the joint trauma system. Instead of giving calcium after four units of calcium-containing or citric-containing blood products, so either whole blood or RBCs, we use it now after one. And in the prolonged field care guidelines, it's being recommended even pre-hospital, which I think is going to be a bit controversial. But calcium in these patients for the potassium and for the coagulopathy. What about vitamin C? That's uh, increasingly popular. Yeah, for us. yeah, there's a whole <laughs> session on it today. I, I, I don't know. Um, I'm ignore that question. The uh, I think one thing we should really go back to in this uh, particular circumstance is that you know uh, tissue and perfusion is about time, right? So this person's had a downtime uh, beyond you know what most people can survive from, and uh, you know our newer this happened in 2011, and certainly our newer um, kind of uh, not just guidelines, but practices involve having blood further forward, yeah. right? And if this person sure. had received blood, blood product earlier on in their resuscitation, um, their ischemic time would have been different. The probability that they would have even gotten an ED thoracotomy <laughs> would have been different, um, and they would have had a better chance of survival with the avoidance of these complications that we're talking about right now. So I think that you bring up a great point, Dr. Pamplin. So let's talk about what happened with this patient. So he went to the operating room. It's uh, 1650, arrived at 1631. So, just, so he's in the OR for almost two hours. His total cross-clamp clamp, clamp time was 35 minutes. His amputations were washed out and debrided. He was completely unstable the entire OR course. Continued to, as each panel member brought up and predicted, uh, because of his previous exsanguination and ischemia reperfusion, he had two additional cardiac arrests, massive transfusion, as uh, Dr. Cannon and I think Dr. O said, and, maybe, and all, I think all the surgeons did. They did start a fresh whole blood drive. So they started a fresh whole blood drive, even though they have over 300 units of blood. You, they have blood available. So, uh, Dr. Chung, why would you agree? Do you agree with doing a fresh whole blood drive when you have plenty of component therapy? Absolutely. If you uh, you know analyze the uh, coagulation potential of components put together uh, compared to whole blood, uh, there's no comparison. Whole blood wins out every time. Whole blood wins out. What about factor seven? He got factor seven. Does that win out? Uh, in de- in moments of desperation, I wouldn't mind factor seven. But um, clearly, that's uh, right right now controversial. TXA definitely. Uh, TEG uh, driven, uh, you know, therapy is practical. Uh, but in this uh, patient, we're way behind, so it's not going to be that helpful. Uh, and then um, plus minus on the fibrinogen. Is there anyone in the panel who would use uh, factor seven under this circumstance or any other circumstance similar to this? I think you need to know what the patient's uh, pH and temperature are. You know, those are, you know, soft 
potential contraindications, we, I, I would factor that in. You know, if he's profoundly hypothermic and uh, still acidemic, the factor seven may not work. Well, I, assuming we can fix that. I, what's not listed is, again, calcium. Um, and That's because I knew you guys were going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Assuming that the person got extra additional calcium, I think, uh, you know, prioritizing that, the whole blood, um, and uh, uh, that's probably the, the value. Of, I mean, good resuscitation, hemo, hemovascular resuscitation uh, to fix the, uh, the organ system that's not functioning or hemovascular dysfunction, um, as uh, Dr. Kapp has coined it. Uh, is a is a valuable uh, process. So treating blood failure. Jen, can I ask treating, treating blood failure. Can I ask the audience a question? How many of you in your civilian institutions can get your hands on whole blood right now? Okay, so here's the other thing you got to remember Two when we talk. Raise their hand. You need to get whole blood because packed red blood cells. Although we might had we might have had 300 units at Bagram, the average age of that packed red blood cell is probably beyond 24 to 28 days. The potassium content. I know of one soldier that I unfortunately drove right into a uh, supraventricular tachyarrhythmia and then flatlined because it was just like this and we were jamming packed red blood cells into him and not giving him insulin and not protecting him with calcium and I'm sure I gave him a hyperkalemic cardiac arrest. Old blood is toxic. Old blood is toxic because it has lots of potassium and microparticles in it. You go with fresh whole blood just as soon as you can get it and it's amazing. Um, um, it's, it's painful sometimes to realize what we have forgotten. The first paper in the literature calling for the use of whole blood uh, for patients like this was dated. Does anybody know what year that paper came out? 1800s. 1916 was written by a second lieutenant in the Canadian Robinson. Royal Medical Service. Because whole blood, the, the Brits discovered whole blood and, and perfected it in the First World War, and they were using it. So... Yeah, get get whole blood, low titer, O negative, whole blood. And there's 23 uh, hospitals in the United States and two internationally that are using it for trauma patients and for OBGYN emergencies. I suspect that there will be a lot more. By next year. Yeah, Dr. O, does your institution in Hershey use TXA for trauma patients, and is uh, it all trauma patients or is it selective? We do. Um, we use TXA for all our patients that we initiate a massive transfusion protocol. It doesn't come automatically, so you have to remember to give it. Um, and the caveat is that we give it within three hours uh, of the incident. And I, I would say that all our patients come in within three hours. When you're in Afghanistan or Iraq, that, that timing is very is variable. Dr. Cannon, you've uh, written a lot about hemorrhage and hemorrhage control. What do you think about the way the Europeans are resuscitating using fibrinogen concentrate? Do you think that uh, fibrinogen and other concentrates are going to be part of our future resuscitation strategy? So uh, cryo is another option. Fibrinogen concentrate is very expensive, but it may be more effective. Uh, that remains to be proven in the literature. Uh, you know, we um, are using TEG in our center and, and use uh, um, targeted therapy. So if the um, alpha angle is low, then they need additional fibrinogen, and you can achieve that with either cryo or fibrinogen, whatever you have in your center. In most of our U.S. centers, it's going to be cryoprecipitate. All right, very good. Okay, so let's bring this patient to the ICU. So he was stabilized. He did respond to a hemostatic resuscitation and significantly responded to fresh whole blood. We kind of talked already about fresh whole blood. Does anybody have any additional comments? I think that uh, this certainly anybody who's ever transfused fresh whole blood would 
do anything to transfuse a patient like this instead of component therapy. Um, well, Phil Spinella really nicely summarized um, his perspective on, on whole blood today and, and differentiated the fresh whole blood from the cold stored low O titer whole blood. Uh, in this case, the fresh whole blood is type specific. Uh, the storage lesion is non-existent because it just came out of the donor a couple hours before and the platelets are, are active. The cold uh, O low titer whole blood is going to have a little bit of a storage lesion, but the platelets may be a little hyperactive, but it's going to not be type specific, so you have to worry about right. the antibody levels. Right. Sir, you had a question? Uh, just a comment. Uh, from the ICU perspective, uh, again, uh, my ex perspective goes back to Bastion and Kandahar to 2010-2011, but uh, at this point in the management, uh, I'd be, we had Rotem in Bastion in 2010, and uh, the patients that had been massively transfused were still somewhat coagulopathic, even though we had used one-to-one-to-one. -to -one -to -one. Uh, and uh, we, their iCALs uh, had been normalized. Uh, but I, I think this is really a good, a good time to run a Rotem or a TEG to see what, what is missing. Uh, and uh, the other issue is, if maybe you'll get to this, but uh, the intensivist by this time is working with the aeromedical liaison team uh, to, to lock on a flight uh, to get this patient out of there uh, back to the United States, or uh, to Germany, excuse me. Uh, and so getting control of the coagulation, of the coagulopathy at that point, trying to figure out what, what component is lacking, uh, I think is crucial at, at this point. Who and in the audience is a fan of goal-directed resuscitation using TEG to guide your product resuscitation versus just transfusing what you think they need? TEG, TEG users, most people? Okay, and then anybody not using TEG? Okay. Um, all right, so we'll uh, conclude this case and then move on to the next one. So this is uh, post-injury day 16. He did get stabilized uh, after about 36 hours at the roll three. He got stabilized and was able to go to Germany. He did have to have multiple revisions of his amputations while they started low. He ended up having a hip disarticulation on the left and a pretty high AK on the right. You can see that on the x-ray. This is a picture of a patient at Walter Reed. You can kind of see the top of his colostomy and you can see both of his uh, amputation sites. So remarkable when you saw the patient come in, one of the amputations was below knee and one was above knee, but how there's continued injury progression and myonecrosis secondary to the blast injury and possibly some other factors as well. This is seven months post-injury. He had a continued evolution of heterotopic ossification on both of his hips. Dr. Chung uh, and Dr. Pamplin, kind of the, I guess you guys are all really brainy. I could include Dr. O, Dr. Can, and Dr. Hanneman. What are your thoughts on heterotopic ossification? We haven't really observed it re up until more recently over the last decade and a half. Is it something that we're doing? What are your thoughts on it? Dr. Chung, we can start with you. So, um, I mean, there are 30 seconds. large <laughs> communities of folks um, that are trying to, you know, uh, attack this problem. Um, you know, it happens in burns as well. Uh, we think it's uh, related to, uh, um, you know, multi it's multifactorial, essentially. Um, I don't know if we have a good solution for it. Uh, this is certainly a gap in the DOD that needs to be addressed. And for those of, uh, those of you in the audience that are uh, sort of innovators, uh, this is an area that, that we do need a potential solution because this is not the end of HO uh, and uh, combat casualties. 
Any other comments from the panel on heterotopic ossification? Ben Levy from uh, University of Michigan has a rat model looking at this and is looking at therapies. So um, you know, really some promising uh, evidence coming out of his lab. I would also say that invasive fungal infection is really an important um, consideration here and, and early use of uh, Dakin solution and then early uh, irrigation back uh, or instill back uh, therapy is important. Do you believe in topical amphotericin B as well? Uh, you know, I don't know if that's in the current CPG, is it? Uh, I think uh, in the highest risk patient population, there is consideration for uh, um, empiric antifungal therapy. Yeah, that is in the CPG, empiric antifungal. Okay, great. Uh, so long-term follow-up for this patient. He had multiple additional surgeries, extensive rehab, pain from uh, heterotopic ossification. He does work with the military amputee training center. He pursued a graduate educational degree. Uh, this is, uh, with his permission, a picture of him doing pool therapy and a quote that was in the paper when he was uh, discussed. Okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to move on to the rapid-fire round. You guys are each going to answer the question in 10 seconds or less, and then we're going to move to case number two. All right, so the rapid-fire round. We can start with Dr. O. Be prepared. Okay, Dr. O, fluid resuscitation of Blood. choice. <laughs> <laughs> it's all over the floor. <laughs> it's on the floor. It's what they lost, so that's why you should give them back. So crystalloid for sure. Crystalloid for sure. Component therapy, component therapy two to one. Warm, fresh, non-FDA approved whole blood or cold stored FDA approved low titer O whole blood. Warm, fresh. Warm, fresh. Dr. Chung? Warm, fresh. I think Dr. Drahman said it a million times already. So, uh, whatever is available first, um, mm -hmm. and as soon as you get to uh, fresh, uh, warm whole blood. Warm, fresh, non-FDA approved whole blood, and Dr. Cannon. It does take about uh, forty minutes or forty-five minutes to get the warm fresh into the patient. So I, I agree with uh, Jeremy Campbell. All right. Okay, we'll start uh, with Dr. Cannon. Uh, what is that, a bazooka? Houston, we have a problem. You're in the operating room, Dr. Cannon, and this is your finding. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go Dr. out on a limb here. That, uh, yeah, that looks like unexploded ordinance, and so um, I need a Johnny O consult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does this give you PTSD, Dr. O? <laughs> That's his hand right there. Um, so anybody want to comment on something like this and whether or not you would wear, so Dr. O, when you were in this precarious situation, were you guys thinking about personal protective equipment? Uh, no, you, you can't operate in that stuff. It's impossible. It's impossible. Okay. Any comments on that? Did you have your DNA telling you about that at all? Yeah, they were, they were there immediately. Right. That yeah. was the guy with the tattoos friend. on yeah. his arms. But if, if I understand it correctly, it, it, uh, the priming pin would require some head-on force still, right? Or is it, could it be potentially unstable because you don't know what happened in that priming pin? Uh, so the priming pin actually sheared off. It was the, uh, it was the actual um, detonator that was still attached to the base. Would this be an indication to get the intensivists into the OR? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can wear one of them as protective gear. <laughs> or two. Hey, so team effort. So, Kevin, you're at the roll three, and patients going from Iraq to Germany, eight hours. 
So it's a long flight, especially if you're the person flying them. They get to the plane, and the stats go from 100% to 88%. What's your course of action? What are you thinking? They're on the plane, ready to go, and he's Do they have a chest tube, and are they intubated? They're intubated. No chest tube. No chest tube? Mm -hmm. Any, I mean, I I need to know what's... It was the the patient that you saw earlier, the patient with the bilateral. So he had his chest vented, but they didn't put a chest tube in on either side. He had a small right pneumothorax. Right, so I'd be worried about that. But we haven't really gone up in the air yet, so we're not at altitude. So would you, right, no, you have not. This is you, you're loading the plane. Right, so I I would uh, take a lesson, you know, listen in the in the chest to see if he has bilateral breast sounds. Okay. Yep. You hear bilateral breast sounds. Okay. And uh, how much oxygen is he on on the vent? 60%. How much oxygen do you think he's on? The number one reason that this patient is hypoxic, we found time and time again, is we ran ourselves out of stinking oxygen. Yeah, we, we just ran the bottles dry. So I ran out of oxygen. So the first thing you do is check, make sure that you're giving the kid oxygen. So, Dr. Johanneman, someone who worked CCAD and who was a director of C-STARS for many years, so you do everything and you cannot troubleshoot this. Are you flying this guy or are you bringing him back to the cash? No, he's going back to the cash. Going back to the cash. Yep. Okay. All right. It is a long flight. So, Dr. Um, Pamplin, the lactate goes from two to six. You're in the ICU. This is the patient you saw. You're in the ICU. He had obviously resuscitated well to get a lactate to two. Plane's ready to load. It is a long flight. You going to keep him or are you going to send him? How many hours post-surgery is this? He's about 24 hours post-op. Um, I mean, I think that at this point in time, you've got to think about um, missed injuries, of course. Um, a, a good thorough exam to investigate for um, ischemic gut, uh, resuscitation, morbidities. So are you sending him or not sending him? <laughs> uh, I think you got to reevaluate him. If you have uh, not found any additional uh, problems, uh, you probably have some recent labs you can look at. If he needs another unit of blood right now, you know, there's some other things that can be done in a flight in terms of resuscitation. Uh, so CCAP doctor comes in and says we can take four units of blood with us. We're ready to go, but we need to go because we're going to miss our window and not be able to evac. And all you guys know this happens all the time, right? So what are you doing? Can you send him with blood and send him? Dr. Cannon, what are you going to do? I'm going to ground him. You're going to ground him. He needs some more evaluation. Okay. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, just one other thing for our civilian colleagues. The the tradition or the habit was at Bagram, at a place like that, you'd put him on all your CCAT equipment, the vents and everything, at least an hour to two hours before you actually moved him out of the hospital. So something went wrong because... It's not the equipment because he'd been on that equipment. And, and now back home in Cincinnati, it's a practice we're trying to get in the habit of with unstable ICU patients have to go out of the unit. We tried to get our therapist and everybody to put all the gear and the transport vents on them and keep it on them for at least 30 minutes before we move them. That- I think that is one of the most valuable points and lessons learned is that when you're getting ready to transport a patient, move them over to every monitor, every vent, everything before and check their labs on those before you move them out of your ICU. Because the last time you, the last place you want to be figuring this out is at 30,000 feet. That's a great point, Dr. Hanneman. Okay. So, um, who wants to say, so this patient comes into your forward surgical team and it's a host national patient. What's their job? 
What's her job? It's a bomb maker. He's a bomb maker, right. So he's a bomb maker. So we're always thinking about security. So you call the right security people to talk to them, right? Okay. So we're going to go ahead and go to the second case. We're probably going to go... <laughs> we're probably going to go a little bit longer. If you have to leave, we understand. But the second case is a doozy. So uh, it's not about how hard you fall. It's about how you respond, right? Okay. This is a more recent case, September 2018, large explosion and fire. This is not the explosion, but it's representative of the type of explosion that you might see in the deployed environment from a buried IED. And in this case, there was a structural fire uh, after an explosion. Where you are, you are, uh, again, at a very robust Roll 3 Bagram Air Base which uh, has been there so long, it has a name, it has a sign in front of it, which is much unlike our Roll 2s, which are transient move all around theater. Uh, you're at a combat support hospital with four general surgeons and five anesthesia providers. There's a trauma surgeon, a vascular surgeon, and a neurosurgeon. You have uh, ultrasound, ISTAT, plain film, CT scanner, 300 plus units of all sorts of component therapies, and of course you can do a walking blood bank. Uh, point of injury, uh, this is a 21-year-old male, which is in a building next to an explosion that caught fire. He ran from the building and was found outside the building. Uh, he did have evidence of external trauma on his head. He had blood on his head and a large laceration. Pre-hospital, they assisted his ventilations, and they pre-hospital reports that he had multiple burns and a decreased level of consciousness. Pre-hospital GCS is 9, decreased radial pulse, in terms of pre-hospital care, he got a sternal IO, and they started some crystalloid fluid, and a blanket uh, was placed to keep him warm. Uh, he arrives at the roll three at nine in the morning, 30 minutes transports from the scene, mildly hypothermic, extremely tachycardic with a heart rate of 144, blood pressure of 90 over 40, 88% O2 stats, decreased breast sounds bilaterally, no chest movement, uh, large burns, he was unresponsive, He's estimated to be about 60 to 65% TBSA. So uh, what are your thoughts about what to do in the trauma bay? Dr. Cannon. So I'm going to start with the uh, first principles, you know, A, B, C, D, E's. Uh, we're going to assess his airway, uh, see if he's uh, protecting it. Sounds like he may not be protecting it, so I'll probably get set up to, uh, to intubate. Breathing, doesn't sound like he's breathing too well either. Uh, Decreased breast sounds, I'm going to um, probably plan to do bilateral chest tubes. Uh, and then C, I'm worried about the hypotension and significant tachycardia. Uh, assuming that he's bleeding to death, uh, I'm going to start my, my cavitary triage. The chest tubes will help to see if he's got any sort of hemothorax. Uh, fast, I want to know if he's got a positive fast, and I'm going to start some empiric uh, blood product resuscitation through a uh, large bore uh, vascular access. Is there a pupillary exam? Say that again. Pupillary exam. Nothing was noted in the chart. So uh, initial exam, you see uh, these burns on his chest, anterior torso. You don't see any external evidence of bleeding. His abdomen is not distended at this point. Uh, you know, his face is burned. Uh, what are your thoughts about endotracheal intubation attempts versus cricothyroidotomy in the individual with extensive facial burns? Uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Chung. I mean, you have five anesthesiologists 
So <laughs> hopefully one of them can get the airway right. <laughs> How many of them can take this? Yeah, so I mean, you, you got to do an endotracheal. All, all five are on the way. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, I would not be considering a crike unless you had trouble with the endotracheal tube. Got it. Any thoughts on the uh, timing of escharotomies, chest, extremities? Uh, how do you view that issue? So, uh, we, doc, we, pardon me, Dr. O, any thoughts on that issue? Uh, sorry, the question is, I know, knows question again is? Escarotomies. Escarotomies, timing, location. So, es escarotomies, yes. Uh, do we have an airway at this point or no? No airway. The airway is a priority. So, you've gotten them intubated, but there's really not very good uh, chest rise and fall. Yeah, so I would, do, I would do escarotomies right in the ER. Just right. bring the Bovey machine over there and uh, release the chest. Escarotomies in the ER. Okay. He gets escarotomies with better uh, rise and fall, uh, better gas exchange. He's noted to be hypothermic. His estimated weight is about 80 kilograms and TBSA of 65%. So uh, you want to ask Dr. Chung this question? Yeah, well, Dr. Chung's going to have to talk about this in a minute because the, for okay. the next slide. So let's ask Dr. Johanneman this okay. question. Sir, what IV fluids to, I was ready to rate? go. <laughs> you want the honest answer? Yes. The first thing I'm going to do, I'm a general surgeon, and I'm going to pull out my CPG because, honest to God. There you go, the CPG, yeah. Yeah, the CPG, it'll, I'll diagram the burn, it's got the formula, and I'll start keeping records, or I'll get, I'll get my senior medic and, Jesus, get over here, start bookkeeping. Um, I guess we're going to give him crystalloid, but I wonder, and i got so many smart burn people here, I'm probably going to actually go to plasma right away if I could. Not that horrible crystalloid crap. Um, yeah, and then uh, pick a rate. Um, you know, I'll, I'll pick a big rate of 200 and get my calculations done, and by 45 minutes I ought to be tracking. Well, let's talk about that calculation. Dr. Chung, do you want to talk about the ISR rule of tens? Or Dr. Pamplin? So, you know, you have the modified brook in the parkland and you need to do, you know, calculus in your head. It's not that difficult, but in a, in a you know, mass casualty situation, uh, urgent, you know, uh, all you have to do is, is basically um, take the TBSA, multiply by 10, that's your initial fluid rate. Uh, don't worry about cutting it in half, apply basic critical care principles uh, as you resuscitate the patient while monitoring urine output. Uh, using a compilation of various endpoints to guide your resuscitation hour to hour. Uh, you would start, in this case, 600 cc's an hour. Uh, I, I agree with Dr. Johanningman. Uh, FFP is uh, fabulous in this situation. Um, so I would uh, order up at least, you know, four uh, of FFP and infuse it, you know, over six, seven hours and then see where we go. So, Dr. Cannon, would you start this patient on 600 cc's an hour of lactated ringers and call for FFP or not call for FFP, or how would you manage this patient? Yeah, I'm still a little worried about uh, hemorrhage, uh, so I'd be sure that I'd ruled that out. Uh, I like Dr. Johanningman's uh, suggestion of pulling out the CPG. Yeah, I want to see what, uh, what that's recommending. And, uh, you know, if I um, you know, don't have a CPG right at my fingertips, I, I would probably start them at uh, the 600. And, and, again, just as a merciless plug, uh, all for those of you who have not had the privilege, the joint trauma system, which is one of the hosts of this, this is an open record. You can go out there tonight and you can find CPGs 
which is what we've done in Cincinnati, you know, is we've rewritten electronically our trauma manual. We start with CPGs and then we modify them to make them work for Cincinnati. But that CPG is accessible at U.S. Army ISR. Yes, jts.amed.army.mil. Yeah, there's 53 clinical practice guidelines. Uh, and, and the burn one is actually really quite good. So, okay, so. Google knows how to find um, it. And Google has it too, JTS CPGs. All right, so. Um, Dr. Pamela, what do you think about how are you going to start the resuscitation on this patient? Are you So do you believe that a burn patient is a trauma patient until proven otherwise? So Dr. Cannon mentioned he's concerned about hemorrhage, but it sounds like everybody else might be starting crystalloid and plasma. What are you going to do to figure out what else is going on with this patient? Um, uh, green uh, burn patients are trauma patients. Uh, they should always be treated as trauma patients. So uh, the primary assessment in this case has identified no evidence of bleeding. Um, although there is the potential still for traumatic brain injury, I'm still hoping I can look at the person's pupils at some point in time. Um, I think that, you know, this person, is, if they had a TBI, they are certainly at risk for developing increased cerebral edema, uh, especially with the large volume fluid resuscitation he's likely to receive. Um, and we know that some patients like that do herniate. Um, certainly those are not, um, good labs, uh, I would also like to put in one merciless plug. You know, in the event that you don't have access to the internet or uh, CPGs, there's also the option for telemedicine, um, and the at least the U.S. military um, options for telemedicine so can access yes, uh, can access yep. uh, the U.S. Army Burn Center through a single phone number. So, um, no, that's a great never, point. Never and that's feel bad about making a phone call if you don't know what you're doing. That's a great point, Dr. Pample, and that's in the front of the CPG, and that's worldwide. And as you know, since you run the telemedicine helpline advisor, uh, people can call and get help at any time. So now this patient's obviously looking at the labs pretty sick. They get a, a central access placed. IV fluids are started at 5.50 an hour. They're trying to warm them. His pH is 6.9, bicarb of 14, base deficit of 17, decreased pulses in his extremities, Heart rate did decrease from the 140s to the 120s with fentanyl, ketamine, and IV fluids. So you see his numbers, uh, and you, you haven't really figured out everything going on with this patient yet. You're going to go right to the operating room, and if so, what operation are you going to do? You're going to take him to scanner, send him to launch stool too sick for the roll three, go to the ICU, or stay in ATLS. Am I up? Yes, you're up. Oh, boy. Uh, so... If his uh, vitals are improved uh, with some resuscitation, I would go to CT. Uh, if I'm still uh, struggling with his vital signs and, and um, you know concerned about cavitary bleeding, I'd be in the operating room. So if he you know if he responded to the resuscitation, I'd go to CT. I think it's important to get a head CT, and then we can do the rest of our cavitary triage with the answering machine there. Doctor O. Uh, so. Uh, I agree. So I think you have to rule out intraabdominal injury with that, or, or uh, cavitary bleeding, especially with that mechanism of injury. But if there's none, um, then I would do the escherotomies uh, for sure, especially okay. if he's not ventilating properly. Um, and then go to CT scan, probably scan him from head to toe. But I'm, I'm really worried about a severe head injury at this point. Sure. So, um, you know, this is relatively about an hour or two after injury. So that gas would be unusual. Uh, usually you see that kind of gas about six or seven hours into the resuscitation. Uh, in this, if I was encountered with this gas, I would just blow the patient down and get that pH above 7.2 if possible. So, so uh, 
So give him some respiratory alkalosis to correct to his pH or hyperventilin to correct. That's a good point. Anything else before we find out what they did? Okay, so they did go to a CAT scanner. And I don't know if you can appreciate it on the image here, but you can uh, see that he's got significant loss of gray-white differentiation, a small subdural. And then I'm going to, this will pay, play through a couple times so you can appreciate that even though there's just a small subdural, there's a fair bit of midline shift. I don't know, can you guys appreciate that with some ventricular effacement on the right? Dr. Cannon wants to know what his pupillary exam was now, too. <laughs> Both of his pupils are reactive. His right one is sluggish. <laughs> okay, so uh, the next thing after the CAT scan, so and the CAT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis did not demonstrate any other traumatic injuries. So we have a head injury and a 60 to 65% burn uh, wound. So from the CAT scan, the patient went to the operating room. They made the room as hot as it could go. They breeded all the wounds. Uh, did, they already had a, thoracic escherotomies, but did extremity escherotomies, as well as bilateral canthotomies. Any comments on canthotomies? He had significant facial burns. Is everybody, like, if, do you, uh, Dr. O, do you feel like all surgeons should know how to do canthotomies in an employed environment? Yeah, I think you should, uh, because you can actually save somebody's eyesight that way. And you've you got to learn how to do them properly. Uh, they're not as simple as uh, a lot of people may think. Um, in this case, I don't know that a canthotomy is actually indicated, um, unless he actually had globe trauma and you're worried about actual globe swelling. But. He had significant burns to his face. So okay. I think that yeah. was the thought. D Dr. Cannon, do you train your general surgery residents and trauma fellows to do canthotomies? We do. Uh, it's not as uh, deliberate or uh, systematic as it is uh, you know, for our um, active duty folks where it's incorporated into the emergency war surgery course. It's an add-on to the asset, uh, so the asset, asset plus. Um, but we've done canthotomies in the trauma bay at Penn, and, uh, you know, we, and then we talk about it in the morning report so everybody gets the benefit of it. You got one other operation that needs to be done. You got to get you got to get bilateral craniect at least a unilateral large generous craniectomy because you're going to be aggressively ventilating this kid. His ICP is already sky high, and you've got to vent him and control him and hyperventilate him so you can correct that pH because at that pH he presented in not even normal blood clots. And that epidural that's small right now is going to extend. So fix his pH. Fix Got, his pH yeah. so he's not coagulopathic. Fix his yep. pH so he is, uh, yep. yep, okay. Uh, so his natural and uh, catecholamines work. Okay, so these are pictures from the operating room. Just to give you an extent of his burn injuries is after the escherotomies on his arms. You don't see the on chest. And this is the wound you can see on the back of his head. And he also has significant burn injury to the back of his head. Um, uh, Dr. Chung, now that you're no longer at the burn center with us, are you still teaching everybody the importance of the Lund-Browder chart? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So patient then goes to the ICU. He gets a neurosurgery consult. Would, all, would anybody not call neurosurgery for this patient? Okay. So he gets a neurosurgery consult, and they put a ventriculostomy uh, in, and his opening pressure is 25. His ICPs are somewhat high. 22 to 28. After the escherotomies, he has better uh, perfusion in his extremities. His urine output is not uh, very, is there, urine output is not great. It's 10 to 20 cc's an hour, and he's on 600 cc's an hour of LR. So we have a 65% TBSA patient 
with severe TBI, severe TBI, and no other traumatic injuries. So, Dr. Hanneman, do you want to elaborate on what you were saying before about his resuscitation? Well, yeah. Well, I'm just thinking more about trying to get that kid, trying to get him prepped for that nine-hour flight, and it's extremely difficult and challenging to manage that this patient between his need for mechanical ventilation, his elevated intracranial pressures, his ongoing coagulopathy. Uh, this is, uh, and oh, well, the other thing we're, we've probably, we should mention to the audience, the other call that we already made is back home to, to uh, SAMHSA to get activate the burn team so at least they'll meet us in Germany if we can get him there. Do you see a trade-off between the fact that he's not meeting his urine output goal and yet he's got this head injury? Yeah, so, Lee, you, you know, I'm privileged to be sitting among the people who've rewritten, yet again, the standard of care for burns. And uh, I, that telemedicine number works because I can tell you three years ago on Christmas, I was calling Dr. Cancio about a burn in Cincinnati and <laughs> saved the guy's life for me. So, um, yeah, I think what I've gleaned from you guys uh, and, the, and the, the evidence learned about treating these casualties, go to vasopressors. Don't worry about urine. You know, you may lose the kidneys in the short term, but they'll come back, and we have CRRT. Um, I'm more concerned about the hazards. I've seen a number of patients who I kept their urinary output up in theater by flooding them with crystalloid, and then 10 days later on the VTC, I heard that they were, they were dead because they had absolutely unventilatable lungs from ARDS. So I would probably, his kidneys, uh, you know, we'll, we'll support those. I'm worried about maintaining some cerebral perfusion pressure and getting them out of theater. Uh, Dr. O, what fluid are you using? What are you recessing? He's, he's on crystalloid right now on 600 cc's an hour so of LR. I'd, I'd add blood um, FFP and or Paxels if, he, if his hemoglobin is below 10. His hemoglobin, his hematocrit's 49, his hemoglobin 17. I, I'd start an FFP drip actually, um, because, uh, yeah, all, all the points about cerebral edema but also abdominal compartment syndrome is now a concern because I'm, I'm not worried about what's happening now as much as I am worried about what's going to happen six to eight hours from now, which is... Dr. Chung, do you go to FFP or to albumin, and why? So uh, the standard right now is to go to albumin as a second line, uh, obviously, and, you know, it's more difficult, uh, especially stateside, to justify FFP in this situation. And so what I'll say is... Patients, INR is 1.5, has escherotomies, and is at risk for bleeding. And then I, they'll release the FFP. And, and then I, so I use the FFP. Um, and it's, uh, you know, we have uh, some nice animal models at the ISR, and uh, there was a nice uh, rat model that demonstrated Dr. Dubik is in the back, uh, uh, helped us with this study. But we compared crystalloid, albumin, uh, and FFP, and its effect on the vascular endothelium. Uh, crystalloid shreds. Uh, the endothelium glycocalyx layer. Uh, albumin, much less so. FFP maintains it, uh, maintains it. And, and so uh, it, it make, makes me question whether or not the 20 liters uh, of crystalloid that burn patients typically get in this scenario, if we're doing more harm than good. And so uh, there, there's a lot of folks in the burn community uh, that are advocating for more and more FFP. Now we're running up against you know, the, the pathology, the blood bank and, and justification for that and the risks involved with FFP, which are, are not minimal. And that's kind of a similar trend that we saw with blood with a transition to, from component therapy or crystalloid to component therapy in whole blood. It is a bit back to the future because, wasn't it, Dr. Cancio, the coconut grove fire of 1943 that 
every casualty, all 240-something of them were resuscitated with FFP. So in this situation, uh, you know, it, Dr. Johanneman is correct. You do sacrifice the kidneys to a certain degree, but you don't give up on them. Uh, you, 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 um, don't give up you'll monitor the, the urine output. You'll titrate your uh, crystalloid <laughs> to a certain point, um, and you put a ceiling uh, on how high you're going to go and say to yourself, I'm not going to go higher than a liter an hour. In fact, maybe I'll decrease it a little bit because of his brain. And then you start the albumin and FFP and see what happens. If the urine output is low uh, and your, uh, you know, your, your knee jerk is to go up, yet the lactate is normal, you don't go up because you don't want to sacrifice the brain. Right. And so in this situation, you're, this is a nightmare, nightmare scenario. Good luck. You have to be a clinician hour to hour at the bedside figuring out your next step. And it's a very complex situation. Uh, sir, we'll go to your question one second. I just want to ask Dr. Cannon if he's using FFP or albumin. Uh, I like the FFP option. You know, I round up on the INR and uh, look for any sort of oozing from the uh, from the escharotomies, and I'm, I'm going to pull the trigger on FFP. From the audience? Yeah, if I could make a couple of comments. So, um, you know, I realize the Parklet formula is a bit old, but uh, if you just applied the Parkland formula to this situation, you'd calculate about uh, 20 uh, 20 liter fluid deficit in 24 hours, and if you give half of that in the first eight hours, uh, you'd want to give about twice as much uh, crystalloid as you're giving. So in this situation, uh, it might be uh, wise to uh, to get your ultrasound out and, and look at the, the IVC and see, you know, get some data uh, as to where you are in terms of your volume. Uh, and the other uh, comment that I'd want to make uh, is concerning the um, uh, cerebral hypertension, uh, intracranial hypertension, that uh, might want to consider giving uh, some hypertonic saline because you're using lactated ringers, which has a sodium content of uh, 130, and you might want to drive up the, uh, the sodium into the 150 range with a, with a brain that looks that tight. Great point. A quick comment. It's a great idea to do uh, an echo, do some ultrasound. Uh, the problem is we don't have good data on uh, IVC during burn shock, during successful burn shock, so we need more data to really be able to utilize uh, that information. Granted, but it's, it's one more data point that you have. And uh, if the IVC is collapsing, uh, you know, uh, that's an, or, or if the uh, left ventricle uh, walls are kissing so, and, so and the left ventricle is hyperdynamic, then, you know, that would push you towards giving more fluids. Uh, Maybe, that, that's, unless, unless the risk is excessive, and that's the case here. Um, I, I would guarantee, without doing the ultrasound, that the ventricles are kissing and IPC's flat in this situation. Um, it, you know, we're dealing with a 65% burn. Um, so the comment about the Parkland formula, when we looked at, you know, when we rolled out the burn flow sheet, about half the uh, providers decided to use the modified Brook uh, another a good, you know, the other half uh, decided to use the Parkland to calculate their initial volume. Uh, and now, you know, this whole concept of giving half the volume in the first eight hours, that, that's, that's a concept that is in, not practical, uh, practically uh, utilized. Uh, at the eight-hour mark, you don't just automatically go to half the rate, for example, uh, as an example. You, you uh, look at what the patient's giving you in terms of your urine output, what the lactate's doing. If you want to look at the IVC, look at the IVC, and use a compilation of endpoints that you're comfortable with as the clinician at the bedside to decide to go up or down. 
Uh, and so that's why we abandoned the, this whole concept, give half the fluid in the first eight hours, just start something, and then titrate using basic critical care principles. Back to the two versus four, uh, the, the patients that got four ended up with a six cc recess. Patients that got two ended up with a four cc recess. And what we learned from that uh, data is that it doesn't really matter where you start, but if you start high, you're going to end high, no matter what. And I think your article, Dr. Chung, is called Fluid Begets Fluid, right? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Dr. Cannon, what did you, uh, you had something you wanted to say? I was going to mention one other a bit of technology that's uh, recently come along, thanks to the folks at ISR, is um, a decision support tool. For those of us that don't do burn every day, uh, it gets a little uncomfortable, especially when they're this sick. And uh, the burn navigator is a great innovation and, and can help uh, sort of keep you between the, the, the rails as you're uh, uh, initiating this resuscitation. Okay, so quick poll of the panel. Who of you is giving hypertonic saline? Unless, Jeremy, you have a burning, burning point you want to make? I, I mean, I think the technology is useful, but I think we need to go back to Dr. Chung's point, which is the value of good bedside critical care is um, without question in this case. Uh, this person is going to be hypovolemic if you look at them with an ultrasound. Uh, their urine output of 10 to 20 in this context of a brain injury as well may be sufficient as long as they're showing evidence of other per, good perfusion. Um, and I think the point about um, uh, being cautious about uh, hypotonicity or driving the, the sodium content down with the LRs is valid in the context of the um, brain so, injury. So who's giving a hypertonic saline, 3% sodium chloride for this patient? Dr. Yeah, they, o, yes or no? They, yes. Yes, hypertonic. Yes. Dr. Chung? Yes, hypertonic as you're resuscitating the patient. Right. So what you would be doing is adding it to okay. the baseline resuscitation. And the rest of the panel is nodding. Okay. Uh, all right, so fluid resuscitation that this patient underwent, they started FFP, about one to two units per hour because, you know, those escarotomies. Started 3% saline for increased ICPs. Repeat labs, uh, pH 7.2. Bicarb of 20, base deficit negative 8, lactate 7, hematocrit of 49. So plasma for burns, we've kind of talked about that a little bit. I guess the question that I would ask, uh, we can start with Dr. Johanningman, do you think that in any patient, 600 to 800 cc's of a crystalloid an hour increases ICPs or just in patients with TBI? Boy, I, you know, it would it'd be conjecture. I really don't have good data. I'd just be worried as heck, and I, I want to know some way to monitor this kid's brain as much as anything else. Can I make a comment? Yeah, of course. So um, I, I think um, it's less important um, you know, we worry about a 30-liter 30 recess in a 24-hour period in these types of patients. But I think what's more important than the total amount of fluid in a 24-hour period is how fast that fluid is going in a very, very short period of time. And the reason I say this is that's what we've observed in, uh, in the patients that developed intra-abdominal compartment syndrome. It's, it happens in those patients. First of all, they're thin. It doesn't happen in those patients that are obese and have a lot of room. Uh, they're thin, they're young, and they got two liters an hour for three or four hours. Those are the patients that get abdominal compartment syndrome. Uh, you know, it's surprising to me that uh, many patients tolerate 24, uh, 26, up to 30 liters. If given slowly over a period of 24 hours, uh, some of them don't have compartment syndromes, and that, that's really shocking uh, to, to see. There's a comment from the audience. 
Jason Kane, University of Chicago. Uh, full disclosure, I'm a pediatric intensivist, so feel free to tell me to sit down just as a pediatrician because it may not apply. <laughs> um, there was a comment made earlier that got glossed over very fast, and that was decompressive craniectomy. And in the most recent TBI guidelines, that's still stated as a controversial topic. It was stated up here almost as if, of course, we would do that. The CT scan you showed had already shown loss of gray-white matter differentiation, at least on one side, suggesting at least some form of hypoxic injury. Is the panel suggesting that decompressive craniectomy in this situation, traumatic brain injury, is standard? Or is this an option that individual surgeons are going to consider for this particular case? Dr. Canzio moved to the panel. So do you want to answer that, sir? I think if this patient were to um, progress, I get worse that uh, that would lead me to talk to my neurosurgeons and head in that direction. Uh, I expect this patient to get worse. I think it would be, uh, I don't have enough experience with this type of patient to say that he will require a craniectomy based on the initial brain injury and the severity of burn, but I'm not at all surprised if he does. Yeah, and I think it's situational from experience in given that um, having transported some of these across that nine-hour in-the-dark flight, your ability to continue to monitor even ICPs during takeoff and landing. And we are, I actually had the opportunity. I monitored 20 patients with ICPs. You've got to remember we have a G-roll takeoff and a G-deceleration on landing. So we impose additional insults on top of not being able to monitor, et cetera, et cetera. So the craniectomy is um, in part to give us an extra added uh, buffer, if you will, um, that if I had this kid in my ICU at Larmsey or somewhere else, I, would, I may not push as hard for. The, the additional variable that you're considering here is the amount of fluid that you anticipate giving the patient. So in the craniectomy studies, you're not dealing with burn patients that you anticipate are going to require 20 to 30 liters of fluid. And so in this situation, it makes sense because you know that's the amount of fluid that they're going to require and, you know, you don't want to be dealing with, uh, you know, herniation mid-flight. The Monroe-Kelly doctrine still stands. I, I think it's, I mean, I, I think the pupillary exam can help, can still help guide some of this. I, I, he's got a brain injury. There's right? always so one. Know, There's always one so on the old panel. school. No, I, I think that, no. you know, I don't know that I would push for a prophylactic craniectomy in this person if you're not, if you're going to be able to continue to monitor them um, on a regular, you know, on a continuous basis. Um, if they demonstrate evidence of increasing intracranial hypertension despite appropriate management and you know you're going to continue to resuscitate them, absolutely I would have a low threshold for getting this, talking to a neurosurgeon and, and trying to push him for a, a craniectomy. Even if he had um, evidence of, of hypoxic brain injury uh, prior to, um, to the, uh, the resuscitation. Uh, we know that these uh, soldiers, young people, have a tremendous plasticity of their brain, and they recover um, actually fairly well, even up to a year or more later. So I don't think there's a reason to say so that you would not do that. So as long as you can follow him, as long as you can. Now, so just yes or no from the panel going down. So I, I think that's a great point, uh, Dr. Pamplin. Dr. Cancio, starting with you, does 600 to 800 cc's of crystalloid an hour in the normal brain increase ICPs? Yes, no. In the injured brain increase ICPs? Yes, no. Yes, and yes. Dr. Dr. Pamplin? 
Normal only, brain, injured brain, 800 cc's an hour. Does it increase ICPs? I, I can only think of one. I think it was a, a case series out of France that about a third of burn patients with uh, ex- yes uh, extremity or no. burns had, <laughs> had uh, intracranial hypertension. So, uh, yeah, you can expect it in a good percentage of patients in both cases. Okay. Dr. Johanneman? Unknown and yes. Unknown in the normal brain and yes in the injured brain. Dr. Chung? It depends and yes. It depends in the normal brain and yes in the injured brain. Dr. O? Uh, Unknown and uh, maybe. I don't know. Okay. Boy, (laughs) you guys would all be tough to play poker with. All right. So (laughs) Missing data and... Blank. Right, missing. Right, and it is, and I think that, and we resuscitate. You know, burn patients are trauma patients, and and a lot of burn patients also, especially if they're caught in a fire, they might have an hypoxic injury without an anatomic defect, and some of them require huge resuscitations. And this is a complete black box. We don't know if their ICPs are being increased. Did you? Have I would only say that I would also not put this patient on a plane before the resuscitation is done. For sure, yes. Got it. Yeah, I think that's a great point because trying because nobody wants to manage this patient in theater, and there's an urgency to get him out of theater, but putting this patient in flight is extremely dangerous. So he continued on FFP and 3%. Uh, his GCS did decrease uh, with resuscitation from an 8T to 5T, and ICPs increased simultaneously. Vital signs, heart rate stabilized around 120s, normal MAPs, or MAPs 60 to 70. pH increased to 7.26. Bicarb got better based excess of... Negative six, uh, PO2 of 60%, POC, PCO2 of 36, and sodium went up to 153 with the hypertonic. So at this point, change in mental status and increased ICP. Start pressers, repeat head CT, or fly very fast to launch stool. Dr. Chung? The, the answer is not on there. What's the answer? Uh, where's the neurosurgeon? Call neuro. Oh, call nurse. Well, they don't want. They don't want to talk to you until you get another head CT. I mean, you know, that's a. Doctor, oh, what are you doing? Uh, I do my own craniectomy if the neurosurgeon. Oh, okay, your own craniectomy <laughs> if the neurosurgeons weren't available. So everybody's thinking that this patient. So he did get an interval head CT, and you can see this will play through twice. That he's got significant subuncle herniation and a midline shift. So he uh, then quickly went to the operating room with neurosurgery. For a right craniectomy, he uh, also had a component of subdural and subarachnoid hemorrhage. He had herniation of brain right after the skull flap was removed. He did require ongoing FFP resuscitation. He maintained his urine outputs around 20 cc's an hour in MAPS. Now, here's the question. This guy needs to get out of theater because he's going to eventually need these burn wounds excised. What are your criteria to transfer? Dr. Johanneman, you ran CCAT for years and have transferred thousands of patients. When are you going to fly this guy? Yeah, so now he goes back to the ICU. We sit him bolt upright. I'm working with my critical care team to see, I mean, we're probably 16, 18 hours into this, um, looking at what his ICPs look like, uh, sitting up with a a generous craniectomy, uh, and we start thinking. Because uh, even if I want him out, sometimes it's 12, 24 hours even to get an aircraft down there. So we at least got to start the dialogue and see. But um, 93% of all critically injured soldiers, including the Burns in theater, were in Germany within 72 hours. So um, with the mortality, attendant mortality of well less than 1%. So it, we're at least getting that discussion going and, and looking. Dr. Cancio, what's the priority? You want this guy to be excised. Uh, what's the priority, his burn wound or his brain injury? 
We uh, recognize the value of early excision, but there is no need for immediate excision, particularly in an individual with this severe a TBI. So this particular patient, I would want to make sure that his resuscitation is complete, that he's hemodynamically stable, and that we understand what's going to happen to his brain injury in flight. That's a long uh, way of saying that we can afford to wait an extra day in theater, at least from a physiologic standpoint. What if the neurosurgeon said you had to wait 72 hours in theater for the maximum swelling to go away? Okay. Okay. Dr. Chung, comments? I would send Dr. Pamplin on the CCAT flight <laughs> so he can do people exams the whole way. <laughs> Dr. O, any comments? What's your priority? Burn, brain, wound? The brain, uh, you know, you start to breeding this guy early, you're going to have huge amounts of blood loss, fluid shifts, you're going to get secondary brain injury. So, And I think, I think that's one important. thing that a lot of people underestimate is the bloody nature of burn surgery and the huge amount of resuscitation, which is why we do not do it in theater. Dr. Cancio, any comments on that, sir? Well, uh, some surgeons lose more blood than others, but we all, <laughs> we all lose some. Uh, there is no need for excision of this patient's burn wounds in theater. Um, and again, uh, immediate excision has been proposed by some, but particularly in the adult population, uh, early excision is beneficial and can be performed as uh, late as a week after injury. Yes, sir. Okay, so this guy flies out about... Uh 96 hours after his injury when he's stabilized. This is just some pictures from the burn center. You can see his craniectomy incision as well as his, uh, uh, the burns on his scalp. He had significant burns to his hands and arms, and after excision required multiple uh, allograft. And then this is his chest with allograft and his face. Like I already mentioned, his face was significantly burned as well, and you can see his canthotomy incisions. Uh, he had an interesting finding during the course of his hospitalization. He developed a hygroma, uh, and which the neurosurgeons really didn't know what to do with. Any, let me see if I can pause it to, on one of the. Uh, any comments on what, how you would manage that, Dr. Drahman? Have you seen one that size before? Yeah, he didn't have obstructive hydrocephalus. They did. They did. Microphone, sir. Or in a couple of patients like that, we've, uh, they've eventually gone on to have the uh, craniectomy uh, or the, the defect uh, put back in place with a VP shunt placed. Right. Yeah, and I think it was because his skin, they, the, burn, the neurosurgeons were not willing to touch a burned scalp at any time. Dr. O, any comments? Do you, have you seen this uh, uh, hygroma this size before? No, that looks awful. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we thought. <laughs> Okay, so uh, this is follow-up. This is about, uh, with his permission, with the patient's permission, uh, about six months after his burn injury. Uh, he's still wearing his helmet because he hasn't had his skull flap placed back on. He's had multiple surgeries on his eyes, which actually look remarkable, considering they had to be grafted multiple times. And this is him uh, after the significant TBI uh, doing his uh, rehab. Our rehab therapists at the burn center work with these patients for hours every day. He's currently an outpatient coming in for rehab daily. So.
still a little bit just uncoordinated, but pretty good overall. And you'll see he's proud of himself for finishing that course. All right, so thank you to the panel members. Appreciate the, And thank you to my co-moderator, Dr. Cancio. I know this session went long. Thanks for everybody for your attention. We hope to see you next year at Case Records of the Joint Trauma System. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.